This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. We want to welcome you to this second episode of our winter series. We're calling it Ready, Set, Think. The, the introductory episode was called Thinking It Through, and that was laying the groundwork for really the whole series. Um, And we're exploring in the series patterns of thought and how being aware of how those patterns of thought are really, it's the key to understanding ourselves and others. And Hannah, as I've been thinking about our first episode and as we're gearing into this series, I think so much of our relationship um, with others and even our conversations, so much of that we are trying to figure out ourselves and others and trying to make sense of where we fit together and how we connect or how we're the same or how we're different. And I really think this is very much the the excitement behind things like your Enneagram number or your Myers-Briggs category. It's like we want to understand each other by categorizing and labeling each other. Right, because of all the things that the digital age has brought us, of all the conflict and all the brokenness of community and all the difficulties, the one thing we are grateful for are all the quizzes. Yes. Because how would we know ourselves otherwise? If we I didn't need to have, know who I am. you know, which Jane Austen character are you? Exactly. Like which, this knowledge is significant, not only so I know myself, but I know who you are, Aaron. So well, I can put it, you in a box. Yes. But just tell me who I am and make it simple. If I know who you are and I know who I am, then especially if we're going along literary characters or film characters, we can kind of play ourselves out in those storylines. We can just say, oh, you're like that. <laughs> and then I already know how to deal with you because the script has been written and it makes it so much easier. Yeah, and I do enjoy the kind of self-knowledge that you can gain for those kind of quizzes and stuff. I mean, we can mock it and whatever. But I do have to say there are times when I take them and I honestly don't know how to answer them. So (laughs) we were doing this as a family just a few days ago where um, our kids are old enough that we wanted to go through the five love languages. And so we were going through these questions and we did them out loud together because it's always fun to you know, see people's responses and kind of guess if we would know what they would say. And it was all fine and good. But then some of the questions, like they give you these two choices and I'm like, um, neither, both. (laughs) I don't know. Like neither one, neither answer. Like, would you rather have, um, quality time, um, at a special place or, you know, a bubble, you know, whatever. Yeah. But you feel like the, the question, I can't pick 
either one. Like either yes. they, it's like, well, I like both of them. Yeah. And maybe depending on the day even. Like, oh, I want that today, but maybe not that tomorrow. I find this with um, categorizing myself as either introvert or extrovert. I would say I am an introvert because I do get energy. I get recharged being by myself. But that doesn't mean that I hate people. And I think that when I say I'm an introvert, people automatically think, oh, you don't like others. And that is not true at all. I really do enjoy being with people and chatting with people. It's just when I, I have too much people time, then I I turn into a zombie and that's no fun for anybody. I really struggle with that question too because I have found that I get really energized by conversations with people about interesting things. But it's not the people so much as the idea or the mm. thing that I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. like I'll I'll see a que- question of do you gain life from talking with people? And I'm like, well, if they're interesting. <laughs> not the boring but, kind. But if it's just like you know, small talk. No, that is death. So I really struggle with like, is it the people that are giving me life? Is it the idea? Where do I find my energy? And so sometimes I feel like we are in these situations where we're not really served by these contrasting, is it this or is it that? Please check yes or no, A or B. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like these categories, I like them but up to a point. It's almost like they're they're helpful until they keep us from being who we really are. It's almost like don't don't force me into that box like what you were saying. It's it's almost like well generally I might be like that, but that doesn't mean I'm always like that. And and that um that need to either know yourself or categorize others so you know them, it's natural. It's like we like aspects of it, but it's not always helpful. And that is really the premise of today's episode. Right. Today's episode, we're calling Thinking Twice. And we're kind of, um, we're, we're going to explore how sometimes these, the way we frame a question or the way we frame information that calls us for this gut initial response may not be the best way to engage it. That there may be layers of meaning or a more robust answer that can't be contained in just a yes or no answer or an either or answer. And so we're using the language of thinking it twice, both to talk about that pause that you need to take to go deeper and really explore whether, um, Um, The question is framed in a legitimate way, but also the fact that sometimes the best answers come with both and. And to help us explore the idea of paradox, we'd like to welcome on a longtime friend of persuasion and guest, Jen Pollock-Michelle. Hi, Jen. Hi, guys. So great to be with you. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. Now, we've asked Jen on today, not just because she is a friend and not just because she's a good thinker, but that she's done a lot of thinking lately about this idea of paradox because she's written a book called Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. And Jen, I just love that concept. I mean... It's, it is exactly what we need, I think, at this point in our cultural 
conversations and how we're engaging each other, um, not just in our private lives, but online. So um, congratulations on the work you've done with this book. Thank you. And I'd really like it if you could help us maybe understand a little bit about what led you to this topic. Like, Mm -hmm. what were you seeing? What is this world that you described, the either-or world? And what pressure points were you feeling that you said, we really need to give attention to this question? I love that you talked about in your intro just the complexity of human beings and the complexity of of human relationships, because that's exactly where it started for me. Um, I say kind of early on in the book that this book started in a counselor's office, which is not really the way I really wanted to kind of admit like, ah, you know, but, but the truth was that I was in a difficult relationship with someone in my extended family. And, um, this person, there was a lot of trust that had been broken in the relationship. And still I felt a real obligation to continue in relationship with this person, but I just wasn't sure how. And, um, I went to the counselor sort of with these two questions in mind. Um, and it, and it was framed as an either or, you know, do I suffer the lying in this relationship? Is this person, do I just need to kind of pretend like either it's not happening or maybe giving kind of a, a margin of grace for some of the, the trauma that had been suffered by this particular person and just say, you know, we, we plod forward, we go forward and just kind of, make the lying something inconsequential, but that really didn't feel very right to me. Cause I mean, it was, it was very consequential. It was, it was the reason why the relationship was, was floundering, but you know, I mean, sort of the, or part was, well, do I just kind of cut the relationship off and say, well, you know, we can't move forward until you are telling the truth. And so it, it was that, you know, either suffer the lying or sever the relationship. And I, I really wouldn't have even said that um, it felt like an either or, but I mean, it, it obviously was. And the counselor sort of looked back at me and said, you know, do you think there could be other possibilities um, in a very gentle way? And I thought, yeah, of, of course. And it started to expand the question of, um, you know, how often do I only entertain two possibilities, two alternatives, either or, A or B, yes or no, you know? And, um, and, and when I started to just kind of think through scripture and the way that God offers us more possibilities, I started to see kind of both and everywhere. When you describe this um, this either or dilemma that you were in, how did you then expand that out to how you're seeing that play out in the world at large? Are it, because it's more than just these specific scenarios. So how how are you seeing that play out in society today? That, you know, it's such a good question. I I often come to things um, through the lens of desire, you know, work that I've done in the past, you know, always making me attuned to, you know, what is it that I really want? What is it that I really long for? And when I think about coming to a situation with the two alternatives, either or, what I really want is I want something simple. I want something clear. I want something easy to follow. You know, I actually want to reduce the complexity of my life. And and this is going to sound like a really strong strange 
kind of example to bring up, but I think about like um, Marie Kondo, like all this kind of joy of tidying up and why are people so bent on minimalizing and simplifying? It's because um, modern life feels really cluttered and overwhelming and, and we're all sort of driven to kind of reduce complexity in our life. It makes us feel as if we're in control. And I think that that desire for control um, is really um, at root sometimes when we want to just, we just want easy, kind, and tidy systems and explanations. And, um, you know, I want that too. I wish I just, I wish to say I didn't, but I do. <laughs> I think that's a fascinating um, frame and, and entirely accurate from what I'm seeing both in my own life and in my relationships with other people. And I think it's not just trying to gain control over your world that feels chaotic, mm-hmm. but sometimes it can be a way to gain control over other people. Mm-hmm. So there's, mm-hmm. yeah, people are chaotic and there's a sense of, I need you to be defined. Yes. So I need you to fit in a box. I need you to fit in a tribe. So especially like with political issues or um, theological issues, I need to know who you are Mm -hmm. so I can know how to approach you. And so sometimes we'll use that either or not as, well, tell me who you are. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you think or why do you think this way? But we're like, are you a conservative or are you a liberal? Right. You know. Tell me who you are. And if you don't tell me, then I will define you. Mm -hmm. I will say who you are Mm -hmm. as a way to gain control over the chaos. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad because it's just, it's a way that, it's the way that conversations are always curtailed, right? Either or, I mean, you really, there's not really a lot of thinking involved in it. There's not a lot of curiosity that's really required. And when you think about entertaining possibilities beyond either or, you know, you think about just the way that we could, um, allow ourselves to embrace the complexity of human beings. It would call forth a lot of curiosity, a lot of humility. Um, conversations would continue and they wouldn't end. And, and that's what makes me sad a lot. I think even in, in the things that I'm seeing and the things, honestly, that I see in myself, that when I want things simple, it really is just a way for me to kind of um, end, like curtail um, some real virtues um, that I think are could be beautiful. It is kind of a dead end. It, it does stop a conversation because it's like we can go this way or that way instead of, well, let's forge a new path. And that's what I love um, both about the energy of your book and this kind of approach to um, finding a third way is that it it does tap into human creativity. It taps into the creativity of a God who said, I'm going to destroy all your categories because I'm going to act in ways that that can't be defined. And so there is almost, for me, there's this call to invention. There's this call to um, exploration and discovery and creativity and can we find a new path that would that we could travel together in some respects? And I, I love how um, in the book you talk about God being the source of paradox. 
that he himself was the one to introduce paradox into the world. And I think you talk about um, the incarnation, um, particularly that caught my eye, that in the incarnation with Jesus Christ as God taking on human flesh, basically God saying, and deal with that, (laughs) both and. That's right. Like it doesn't reduce into anything sort of simple and tidy. I, you know, I say in the book that the great I am became the great I and, and it, it kind of then sort of makes something, um, it sort of posits this concept that, that God himself, if he embraced kind of embraced paradox as an axiom of his own character, you know, what is that telling us about reality? Um, the, the reality that he's made and that he superintends and sustains with his own voice, the reality of human beings, you know, the reality of, um, are calling to respond to him in the world. I think it means that there are a lot more possibilities than A or B. Um, And that a life of dependence upon God requires the kind of humility that's forced upon us when we contend with paradox. Because there really is just no easy way of understanding things that are both and. You know, it, it really, you know, we can't, it's you know I I opened the book and and explain how I was um was witnessing actually to a woman who's a Jehovah's Witness and um you know they've re- they don't believe in the Trinity they've reduced a lot of the they've sort of eliminated a lot of the paradoxes of the Christian faith and it and it looks so neat and tidy. Um, but at the end of the day, it destroys so much of the beauty of the gospel. And, um, but it, it takes a lot of humility to stand in places of tension, to say, I don't really understand that. And I don't really know how this fits together. It, it really is, I think, the position of that you have to take a knee. You, you kneel at the, at, in, at paradox. You, and, um, you become a child of the kingdom. You know, I mean, children really don't, children are amazing um, with their ability and capacity to embrace tension. They don't really have to solve everything. Um, they just can embrace things. I think there are a lot of things in our lives that God's just in calling, he's calling us to embrace rather than to explain. <laughs> there are so many things about how our brains work that I think tie into this. Mm. I mean, part of our our growing up, you mentioned how kids are able to deal in these uncertainties and in the wonder. Mm-hmm. And so we we start off that way, but part of our maturing is learning and growing and and trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. I I mean, that's really part of our brain work is how do we understand the world? How do we understand ourselves? What are we learning? What are we moving toward? So that's, even that is the paradox. It's like the mystery, and yet we are learning to try to figure it out. <laughs> so if if it is that this is who God is, and therefore we're made to be like him, we, we are wired like him, why do why is it that we push this paradox and this wonder aside? Why is it that we're leaving behind this childhood wonder? And and is this something to embrace again? Mm. What what are you learning about that, Jen? Can you speak to that? 
Yes, I think there's historically we can sort of look to the Enlightenment as a way that kind of pushed, at least in, in terms of faith, pushed mystery out of faith and really where we've come to prize certainty above all things. You know, when we think about sort of the turn to, towards science and rationality, it's a way that we say, you know, we, yeah, we can be certain about things. We can, we can have empirical proof of things. And those are the things that are, the things that are verifiable are the things that are most reliable. And, um, unfortunately that does not work in a life of faith. And, and, and at the same time, the paradox isn't that is, is that faith isn't just kind of blind belief either, right? It's not as if you don't try to make sense of your experience um, or that you just blindly sort of blithely um, accept beliefs that, that don't make any sense. I, I like the, the metaphor in the book. I, I talk about the experience of Moses before the burning bush. The burning bush was a paradox. It, you know, here is a bush that burns and is not consumed. What does Moses do? He says, I think I'll go in for a closer look. And imagine if that were our posture in the world, that we saw things that were complex and paradoxical and kind of full of tension and mysterious. What if we didn't run and say, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, that doesn't fit all my categories. What if we actually move toward it? And then what is, you know, and then what is the next thing is he, you know, God says, don't move any closer, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And I just think there that that posture in the world has a lot of promise, even for the things that you're talking about, the ways that it could reconcile relationships um, where we could see things, complexity, in people and move toward people um, with a kind of curiosity. Um, and we could also say, I may, I may move closer and not actually, I still may not have understanding, um, but maybe I have greater appreciation. Maybe, you know, I'll be the one that's called to take off my shoes. Um, and um, Imagine if we could kind of be that those kinds of people in our relationships, in our political discourse, and even in our church pews, quite honestly, because I think that that prizing certainty is also also affects the way that we approach church, you know, and that we do continue to think that everything should be systematized and kind of neat and orderly and rational. And I'm the first person to say, I love all of that stuff. I'm, I'm a Presbyterian, you know, we love our boxes um, and we love our systems. But I think we have to still say, God, you know, he doesn't, he will not confine himself um, to our kind of bounded theologies. And um, we are, um, I guess we are at a point of real danger when we think we've got things mastered. I love that you see paradox as an invitation to greater study mm. and to move closer and to wonder and an awe and yet observation from a standpoint of humility. Mm. And the reason I think that's so important to point out is because I have seen people use paradox um, as a way to negate the tension in, in the sense of saying, well, all ideas are equally valid. Mm. Or you say that and this other person says that. 
And how are we to know? Mm-hmm. Or there's good people on all sides, mm-hmm. you know. And so there is this attempt to use the tension between ideas, um, not as as a positive call to further insight and further clarification and exploration and humility, but almost as a way of flattening and negating the argument altogether. Yes. So there, there is a potential to say, um, who can know? Mm-hmm. And that's not what paradox is saying. It's not a shrugging of your shoulders when you encounter attention and say, well, there's no way to know the truth. There's no way to know what's going on here. Mm. Um, so we're not even going to try. Mm-hmm. We're not going to make any clarifying questions or judgments. Um, as you're describing it, there is a mystery that is so beautiful and compelling that we're drawn to it in further exploration, even as we know the limits of our capacity to understand it, which are two different things. Totally. It's not an evasion of truth claims. You know, it's actually an affirmation. And this is, this would be the definition of paradox. It's the affirmation of truths logically at variance with one another, you know, the truths that seem to be contradictory. And Chesterton was really helpful for me in this. You know, he talks about the church's utter abhorrence for pink. And, he, and, 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 and this is kind of his metaphor for paradox, that it's the affirmation of red and white, not the moderation of red and white into pink. And so, for example, you know, when Chesterton talks about humility, Christian humility, it's the affirmation of Christian, of, of human beings being the chief of creatures and the chief of sinners. Not, not really chief of creatures and not really all that bad. No, both and. And so, um, it is a resolute affirmation of truths that seem contradictory, which is what creates the tension. And I think in conversation with one another, we really can challenge, like, I think that what happens in, you know, obviously, is that we tend toward, um, you know, when we have two truths at variance with one another, we tend to favor one over another, right? It's really hard to hold truths in tension and to affirm them simultaneously. And what can happen beautifully in community is that when, you know, I kind of fall off and I want to talk about, oh, human beings, let's, let's go to Chesterton's example, you know, chief of creatures. Oh, I am all for, you know, the glory of human beings. And I could, you know, maybe take that to extremes that don't give credence to the reality of human sinfulness. And, and Hannah and Aaron, you being in conversation with me and in community with me, you can kind of call me toward the truth of human depravity, that we're the chief of sinners. And, and then in conversation with each other, we hold those truths at, at variance. Um, we hold those truths simultaneously. And I'm actually, even as we're talking now, thinking, I'm wondering if, if that is actually one of the primary calls of community because me and myself as an individual, as a very limited person, it's probably absolutely impossible for me to hold two truths logically at variance with one another, you know, to hold that tension in myself. But maybe together we do that better. Part of this call to community so that we can 
basically temper each other a little bit. So we balance each other out a little bit. I love that because so often if we get into, let's say, a category where all like-minded people are together, then it's almost like you are are cutting off the power of it. Um, it it's, it's reminding me of um, something that happened years ago. Mike, my husband Mike, went with the Red Cross on a three-week stint after Hurricane Katrina. So I can't remember what year that was, but that was a long time ago. Um, so he went on this three-week stint, and um, everyone there uh, that was willing to go on this three-week stint. They were a bit younger, quite more liberal in their their thinking and their stances, um, not really faith-grounded, whereas Mike comes in a little bit more conservative, strong in his faith. And they these people said to Mike, oh, people of faith, Christian people, they don't help. They don't come. And Mike's like, oh, no, they do. But they're going with their church groups. And Mike was realizing, oh, this is the danger of us separating ourselves out is because we're not interacting and we're not bringing just good community one to another so that we're balancing each other out and we are helping each other to understand the world better. So that has always stuck with me. It's like, oh, if we stick to our comfortable groups where we all think the same, then this is what happens is that we lose out on the power of understanding and seeing the world more clearly. So I I love what you're saying there, Jen, about that call to community. I feel like that's so important. I was thinking, you know, as you were sharing that story, I was thinking about the race conversation um, that, you know, and we could think about the paradox of grace, grace and truth. Um, a lot of times people think that those are just kind of, we have to moderate those. We moderate grace with, with truth and truth with grace, and we actually affirm both. And I was just recently reading Natasha Robinson's uh, Sojourner's Truth and, and the affirmation of truth that, you know, for African-Americans, they often feel like white Americans are like, oh, grace, grace, let's just, let's just move forward, you know, and, 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 and her affirming, we have to tell the truth about what's happened in history to African-Americans. And until we tell the truth, you know, there isn't going to be real healing and, and, and she is able to say that because of her story and because of who she is and in community with people like her. And that's just one example. The race conversation as people are in community with each other across differences, we are able to affirm truths that are important to us individually, but we, we, we come collectively to a sense of truths that are hard and, and hard to hold and, and that we have to hold in tension. And that requires a lot of charity too. I've talked about humility as a virtue of paradox. And I think charity is a huge um, virtue of paradox as well, because it is kind of that slowness of speech, right? That, wait, hold on, I may not have the full side of the story. The story may be more complex than I initially thought. And it may require me to affirm things that I don't necessarily always feel are important, but wow, I start to see that is really important. And yeah, so that that's another example, I think, of ways that in community, we come to affirm truth in, in all of its complexity. That reminds me um, 
I think was it Bonhoeffer that writes about cheap grace? Yes. That without um, clear and defined sin and repentance, grace becomes muddied and it's cheapened. It, it is not the grace of God so much as the excusing of ourselves. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about. Like w- the two truths held in tension actually rely on each other to be pure for the other to be what it is. So if you mitigate one, you end up damaging the other, even though you think this will help me close the gap between them. And really the gap is not intended to be closed. They're intended to um, be themselves, to be the truth that they are for the good of the other thing. And I think that's probably something we miss as well, that you will damage the opposing truth if you do not clearly hold to the oppositional truth. Absolutely. And, and Chesterton is, is again, just really good on that. Um, you know, he, one thing I think is wonderful. Um, he talks about this in orthodoxy in his book, orthodoxy said, you know, I always noticed that Christianity was consistently attacked, but in for always for inconsistent reasons, you know, some people found it too meek and some people found it too bold. And, and the, and the very interesting thing, those were just examples that, that, um, that he had. And he said, you know, Christianity really is, um, it, it is paradoxical and that's its beauty um, that that it can be actually criticized for very opposite things, if that makes sense. Um, and that it only stands insofar as it stands affirming things that, again, seem paradoxical and contradictory. So for, uh, so for the meekness and the boldness, you know, that Christianity would call us to turn the other cheek, but also to, you know, be um, bold and courageous, you know, all these, you know, take the, the, the story from Joshua or Moses or don't fear and don't be afraid. And just, just that. Um, and again, I think that positions us to not be God, <laughs> To say that, you know, I can be still and be small and know that he is God. I feel like that is a really good note to, to wrap our conversation. I wish we had more and more time, um, but we're, we're here at the end of our time for this discussion. But Jen, we are so grateful that you would come and, and share all of this with us as we start to sort out for this series and, and to try to understand how our brains work a little bit and to challenge us on how we think. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, I'm so grateful and excited about the conversation. Well, we will um, get all the links so that all of our friends out there can track you down and and make sure they are able to follow you and and to hear a little bit more from you. Um, As we look forward, though, we have more episodes in the works. So even though we're winding down this part of the conversation, there's more to come. We have episodes in the works on things like scarcity mentality and survival mode and what it means to be made in God's image and how all that affects our thinking. So those episodes are um, in the works. Watch for those in in the weeks to come. And I wanted to point you to some other conversations that we've had on Persuasion that touch on how we think. There was um, last 
week's episode, Thinking It Through. That's the kickoff for this series. But previously on Persuasion, we talked about the abundance of childlessness, and that's kind of hitting on um, this idea that there actually can be good things even when there is a lack. And Interestingly enough, the other episode that I chose to highlight was one from quite a few years back, Goodbye Clutter and Shores, Hello Joy and Beauty, and that is on Marie Kondo, which was mentioned earlier. So so be sure to listen into those as well. But we would love to have all of you listeners join the conversation. Hannah, do you have a question of the day? We do. The question of the day is, what is the most unsettling paradox that you have wrestled with? What is that particular paradox, tension of ideas that you find difficult to reconcile? Um, maybe it's the paradox that God is good and he is powerful. Maybe it's the paradox of uh, human and divine will. Like who is actually making the decisions here? Um, so join us um, on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC. Let us know um, what the most unsettling paradox that you encounter is or you can join us in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, and ha- we have lots of conversations there. If you're not a member, you can become a member for just $5 a month and support um, this conversation, all the articles that go up at Christ and Pop Culture, and the community that we're building there. We want to say thanks to Jonathan Clausen. He produces all the shows for Persuasion and all the other shows at Christ and Pop Culture. You can give them a listen at ChristandPopCulture.com or at iTunes. You know how to search for them. And while you're there, we would love to have your ratings and reviews so that other people can more easily find us. We thank all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.